The Malaysian state of Sarawak, on the island of Borneo, is a beautiful land where dense rainforests, much of it protected areas, meets the white sandy beaches along the South China Sea. But behind this beauty, disputes over land between local communities and large companies have been going on for decades where stories of harassment, violence and intimidation are nothing new. Oil and gas companies and palm oil plantations have slowly encroached upon the ancestral lands of indigenous communities. One of those communities, the Dayak, turned to palm oil as a source of income and with the help of external funding, transformed their lands into small plantations. But as time passed, one village after another received visits from companies laying claim to their land. Enter Bill Gayong. A political secretary to a medical doctor and local parliamentarian. Gayong, described by friends as a powerful and persuasive speaker, had been supporting the Dayak in land disputes for years and raising awareness amongst other tribes, bringing people together whenever a village needed support, and connecting villagers to human rights groups and lawyers to help their cases. He provided this vital support to local communities in costly land disputes, holding talks and arranging transportation for villages to attend court hearings, which were often postponed without notice. Some of these disputes go back 15 years as they are continuously delayed. One such dispute with a local palm oil company, the Tung Huat Nia Plantation, a dispute which had lasted nearly a decade who was granted a provisional lease of over three hectares was challenged by the local communities. Gayong's drive to help the indigenous communities led to death threats over the years, allegedly even from the Tung Huat Nia director. It was in this environment that on the morning of June 21st, 2016, Gayong was heading home from work and had stopped at a road intersection when a car pulled alongside and shot Gayong twice. He died instantly. Four men were tried for Gayong's murder, including the plantation company's director, but three of the accused were discharged and acquitted after the prosecution failed to establish a case against them. Four years have passed and the case has been closed. However, Gayong's friends and family say that justice has yet to be served. They are lodging an appeal with Malaysia's new Attorney General to reopen Gayong's case. The initial court case was flawed from the start as the prosecution had not called up all the witnesses and failed to draw links between the gunmen and others accused. After Gayong's killing, the reverberations were clear. Activism within the Dayak community faltered, driven by fear and lacking a strong leader. Locals are doubtful they would get the support needed in the fight to retain their land. Bill Kayong, 
left behind his wife and two young children. The life of a mediator is complicated and often very dangerous. They find themselves placed between two sides that are fundamentally opposed to one another. With the difficult task of finding common ground in which to build a compromise and forge a new relationship without conflict. They interact in all manner of disagreements. Over natural resources and land disputes, like Bill Kayong, some go between warring political sides, they stand in between rival gangs, or other forms of internal community violence. Mediation is one of the most effective methods of preventing, managing, and resolving conflicts. And the mediators, these brave individuals, put themselves in the firing line from both sides, putting the greater good ahead of specific interests to prevent bloodshed and conflict. But there are those actors who thrive in chaos, organized criminals who profit from violence and confrontation. Where institutions are weak and there's corruption, organized crime tends to flourish. And these circumstances pose significant challenge to the mediators who sacrifice a lot, at the risk of being discredited, bullied, bribed, harassed, and assassinated even. There are lots of reasons why organized criminals try to silence mediators. But through this podcast and campaign from the Global Initiative Against Transnational Organized Crime, we want to make sure we continue to hear their voices, continue their fight, and strive to make the change they sought. This is the Faces of Assassination. My name is Siria Gastelum Felix, and I am the Resilience Director at the Global Initiative. Through this series of podcasts, we'll be hearing stories of those who fought back against organized crime and speaking to those who are organizing the fight back today. And crucially, we will discuss how you can play a part in tackling this important issue by joining the Global Initiative's Assassination Witness Campaign. In the podcast today, we're going to be discussing the role of mediators, the particular role of women in mediation, but most importantly, why are both men and women mediators at risk? What is being done right now to combat it? And what can be done to make further change going forward? Urban violence reduction strategies now typically include the deployment of street outreach workers to provide counseling, mentoring, and mediating services to high-risk population groups. A good example is the Cure Violence model that started in the United States, and it is now applied in Central America and other places, which, instead of a traditional criminal justice approach, follows a public health-based approach and focuses on prevention. I'm delighted to say that joining me for the discussion today are Marcus McAllister, International Trainer and Implementation Specialist at Cure Violence Global, in South Africa, Roxanda Pasco, chairperson of the Manenberg Safety Forum, MSF, and the Western Cape United Safety Front, and Yvette cheson Wure from the Liberian-based Angie Brooks International Center. Welcome, everybody. Yvette, if I can start with you, 
Mediation can be conducted in different settings, from peace talks in regions afflicted by conflicts related to war, to detecting and preventing urban violence. Who are the mediators and why is their work relevant to promote peace in these communities? Thank you very much. Good afternoon. Mediators are very important because they're usually third parties that are not associated with any part of the conflict and they usually are neutral. They can be male or female, but they come to help others reach an agreement about the conflict, about whatever it is that's before them. The mediators also facilitate rather than direct the process. What risk are mediators exposed to when conducting their work? Well, it depends on in what setting they're conducting it. In a setting like an example with the gang violence, you will have the physical situation where you can be physically attacked. People misunderstand your position in this in while you're trying to facilitate something. Let me give you an example of this, actually. In Ghana, while we were having mediation with the gangs and trying to prevent violence during elections, I'm in the car, we're going to meet the gangs in a particular area. As we get there, the young man in the front who was the contact with the gang leader said to me, well, counselor, you cannot take your hand back with you in there because it is so violent and this is one of the worst set of gangs in Ghana. And at the point when he's talking to me, the gangs have already come to meet me. They have completely covered my car. But anyway, so I said, really? He says, yes. So I then say to the gang leaders, wind the glass down. Everybody gave me six feet, which they do. Who's here to meet me? And the gang leader steps forth and, and I verify he's the one. Yes. Okay. I said, open the door. They open the door. I take my hand back and I give it to him. There's a gas in the car from the young man who brought me, obviously, and the driver, both of them, of course, male. I turned to my assistant who is with me, is female, and I said, let's go. So the gang leader takes my hand and we start jumping over gutters and things until we finally get to the place where they want to be assembled. They have an overturned bucket. I sit on the bucket and the meeting starts. We go through the entire meeting and at the end, Going back to my car, he takes me through the whole hurdle again. I get back in my car, he hands me my bag. Not one thing was missing. Like I said, there were risks, yes. He could have taken my bag and run off, but I doubt it. I think it's also a matter of you showing respect and trust. You know, people can cut through the nonsense and get to the core of the situation also. So I think it's a mutual respect also that's necessary. And Yvette, what moves you to continue doing this job? Peace on a continent. You know, we are women. And the first thing that you note on when it comes to violence is that the children who are committing violence are not children in your house sitting down and having dinner with you or behind desks and things in offices. These children, when the violence starts, are getting under their beds and running to their parents. These are the children who have been disadvantaged. These violent disruptors. And what moves me is that Africans, and not only Africans, I see that all over the world, use elections as a point to get themselves power, number one, to engage these young people to be disruptive and to bring violence in their communities. They are already at the bottom of the barrel. And our governments and our countries are constantly being overturned when these elections come because that is the entry point. And they use these children to discard them like toilet tissue afterwards. 
So that even brings more distrust in the community. But what motivates me is that if we can change these young children's minds to understand that they must look at their communities and they must say, I'm not going to disrupt my community just for a politician to sit in an office for four years and have the police running behind me, shooting me, probably disabling me. And I will never see the politician or his secretary. Secretary will never come, will never come to the hospital. It's my mother who's coming there and taking what in Africa we call LAPA, our wrap, and mortgaging it so she can pay for my medication. I will never see any of these people for whom I'm running behind. So that's what motivates me is that we have to have that change of mentality in our youth, that they have to take responsibility for themselves and their communities because we the women and children are the first victim when it comes to war. Thank you very much Yvette. Urban violence is a real problem in many cities around the world from Los Angeles to Guatemala City and Cape Town. Marcus, in some cities violence is so widespread that it's been said it's like the plague. Cure violence has been tackling the issue of violence especially gang violence as a disease. Can you explain the cure violence approach and why this is so important in tackling urban violence? Yeah, so cure violence looks at it through a health lens. Our founder, Dr. Gary Slucken, is an epidemiologist who uh, worked with the World Health Organization uh, many years working abroad in different places dealing with the outbreak of tuberculosis and cholera and AIDS epidemic. And what he found um, that health diseases and epidemics were very similar to what he was seeing in the states and across the country. And so what, what we've done, I've been working with Care Violence now um, going on 17 years. We have applied those techniques that you would eradicate any disease. And this is founded by just World Health Organization's approach. And, and how you do that is uh, you have to identify and detect, interrupt the transmission of that particular spread of that disease. And to be able to look at things from a health perspective, we don't look at it from a criminal justice perspective. I like to look at it like this. When we say it's like a health epidemic, I mean, because diseases, they cluster. Violence clusters. Diseases and different plagues have what they call epidemic waves. Violence have epidemic waves. When you think about the flu, there's different times of the year where the flu goes up, it goes down, it's flu season, and violence is the same way. It, it, it has a trajectory that is very similar to things like the flu. And I also like to use this analogy when you think about epidemic waves, let's just put in, a, in a, like a sense of a wave, a, like a, think of a wave at a beach. It starts out very small and it gets bigger and bigger and bigger. And eventually it becomes a big tidal wave and you know comes down and crushes and destroys everything that's in its path. Well, just think of those little waves before they become a tidal wave as being something called disrespect. And the people we train and hire, the mediators, they are trained to pay attention to disrespect because we know that disrespect is the little wave that's going to turn into the big wave, which is going to ultimately result in multiple homicides, people being killed. And the approach that we look at things, and as I mentioned, violence, it clusters, it has epidemic waves, and then, and lastly, it can be transmitted from person to person. So if you think about a cold, when you cough on somebody or if you sneeze on somebody, and obviously we're dealing now with COVID-19, which has really shed a lot of light on the work we do, because we were already familiar with everything that they're talking about in the country now, because we've been trained on looking at violence the same way. 
because it's transferred from one person to the next. So if I have friends on the streets and my gang and the crew, I've already infected my friends. They've never met you. They don't know nothing about you. But if they see you just because of the anger and the things that I brought to them, I've, so to speak, coughed on them, if, if I can use that as an analogy. And now they are infected, meaning that they're upset. They don't, in most cases, they may not know the total reason why they're upset. They just know that I was upset and I passed that on to them. And so now when they see you, potentially um, things could turn into a, a homicide. And so, you know, even when you think about contract tracing and contract tracing when someone, and, and that word has been going around now heavily with the um, pandemic of COVID-19, and obviously contact tracing is when you go back and you try to find out who has come in contact with the person that was infected so you can stop the spread of that infection. That is the same thing that our mediators do. When they find out someone has been shot or stabbed or some type of violence has taken place, they have to start doing contact tracing what led up to it, who else was affected, who else did the person come in contact with? Because we know that those other things and those other avenues could have infected more people that would lead to more than just the initial violence act that just happened. That's kind of, I guess, the way that I would explain how we look at violence from a health perspective and translate it into the work we do on the streets, uh, mediating conflict and violence in different communities. Roxanne, would you like to respond to what Marcus just said? Yes, uh, Marcus McAllister, I just want to say, I so agree with you. These things are not seen as violence. So people would not necessarily think a person looking at you in an abrupt way would be violence. The question would be, why would you get upset about it? But we look at it and say the mental instability of people and the level of violence they have endured in trauma have put them on that process of not even realizing that they are contributing to that violence. Thank you, Rokshanda. Marcus, if I can turn back to you, what are the big challenges faced by a violence interrupter and how has COVID impacted your ability to operate? Um, some of the challenges have been just getting better at getting on top of things on the front side. Like we're very, very, very good at stopping retaliations. And the reason we're good at stopping retaliations is because of the relationships that we have. Normally we'll find out why a situation has happened and be able to stop it from getting worse. And I think that has been great for Cure Violence because although maybe someone might've been shot or killed, the damage can be a lot worse if you didn't have mediators getting in there to stop it from getting out of hand and being much worse. So we've been very good at that. The challenge is always to be able to stop things on the front end. How do you stop things before they happen? It's not like people are going to come up to you and say, hey, I think I'm going to go shoot somebody today or go do this. The challenge is to kind of keep your ear to the street, keep your ear to the environment, pay attention to different signs and try to anticipate different things. Like here in the States, if we know in a neighborhood that we have a cure violence site and we, we, we do role plays in our training quite a bit on this. And if we know a person is coming home from jail, let's say before he went to jail, he had a particular street that he was running a street and selling drugs on that street. And it was considered, you know, he said it was his street, so to speak. And now since he's been gone, someone else has that street 
his girlfriend is with another guy now. And, you know, I'm just naming things that could transpire. Well, a team of mediators, these are things that they pay attention to. Before he comes home, they know that that could lead to more violence. So they have to try to get on on top of it in the front side of it. And with regards to COVID, obviously COVID has affected us in our ability to kind of intervene as strong as we would like to. The mediators across the country and world have been able to adjust. Literally, I've had a guy in Chicago mediate a conflict. He pulled up in his car and the two people that he knew both of them, and that's why we have great mediators that know the people that they want to mediate, the two people that were having odds with one another, he had them both pull up on the side of his car so he could talk to both of them, but in the same sense, be safe, they were safe. And, you know, he came out of his house and he did that because this situation could have led to somebody being killed. And so I think the mediators have found ways to be creative, but it has kind of set us back a little bit I do want to say to the sister Pascoe, greetings. Um, I, I had the opportunity to be in South Africa. And actually, I was part of a serious mediation that took place in South Africa um, one time when I was visiting there. And we did a serious, real heavy mediation where someone unfortunately was killed. But the team there in South Africa, along with myself, was able to stop it from being multiple homicides, which it could have been very bad in Cape Town and Hanover Park, where we were, where the team is located at. Thanks for that, Marcus. And now turning back to you, Rokshanda, in the South African case, how serious is the problem of gang violence? How does it affect communities? In South Africa, it's very serious. We are seeing it as a war. We have sporadic shooting every day. We have murders every day, especially Marcus in Hanover Park. It's on fire, to say that for a better word. I think we are at a point of no turning point where our government is not assisting any of us as crime fighters or mediators on the ground. Our government is ignorant to what the reality is. A lot of information are constantly given through. There's no relationship between the people and the police because trust has been violated. Trust has been broken between the people and police. You know, it's it's beyond where... Somehow, as crime resistors, we are feeling so frustrated at this moment and are looking at ways where we are non-reliant on government and handle it on our own. We are sitting at this current moment with a gang warfare across the Cape Flats, and it's only about turf and all the gangs within their gangs are fighting each other and other, their rivalry gangs. And so... We are just a few. Many have become afraid and just do not want to go in there. And I salute my, my fellow colleagues that are still fighting the good fight. I'm playing a very shadowy part now because of having to be in safety, but still giving my utmost 100% towards stopping and prevention. Thank you, Rokshanda. Going back to you, Yvette. The inclusion of women in mediation processes can be relevant for many reasons. Women are normally involved in societies in a different manner than men, and they're exposed to conflict and violence differently. Yvette, how their inclusion in mediation processes takes place, and what are the different risks to which they are exposed? It depends on the mediation. We will find that in mediation, especially when it deals with international mediation and conflicts, 
you will find that women are grossly underrepresented, that all the majority of these mediations take place with very little women involvement, and uh, men are in the forefront because that's what it is. And especially in Africa, we have a patriarchal society, and so the men usually go there as mediators. And this isn't good for mediation, number one. First of all, women are at least 50% of society. When you have women's involvement in mediation, it changes the mediation. It changes the way things are done. It also gives a different perspective, remembering that women and children are the victims usually of war and conflict. And it's the women who try to normalize things, even in conflict and war. And I have to give you an example here. In the situation Liberia's civil war, we had where the women finally forced their way to the table in the negotiation. The warlords were sitting around the table and they then decide they are going to divide up the capital city of Monrovia into factional zones. And this one is saying, oh, I want, uh, I want this amount, this amount, number of streets. And the next one saying how many streets he wants, etc. And the women were at the table and said for just a minute, where is the water source? How are, we going to get, how are they going to get water if you want this? How are those people going to get to the market? Where are the churches? To show you that even in that horrific idea of even cutting up the capital into factions for war, the women are saying, I need normalcy. We need to keep the families together. We need to be sure that children aren't raped or killed when they're going for water. And how do we establish schools during this time? So having women at the table makes a difference. It makes a difference on how things are looked at and how you come to an agreement. I think one of the problems when you have women at the table, people tend to think that women at the table are there as gender advisors. We're not gender advisors. The women coming, especially to peace negotiations or ceasefire negotiations, are there as experts. They have the same talent, the same professional and educational standard as the men, and they come there as experts, but come there with a different perspective of knowing how to hold together communities, both before, during, and after that conflict. Roxana, you'd like to respond to Yvette? Way to go, Yvette. <laughs> Way to go. I, I fully agree with Yvette. I think for me, it became a very lonely place at times to be the mediator, especially when as a mother myself, when the gangs, and, and, and funny enough, the name mother, we're bringing something different to the table when it comes to negotiations. We must know this, this young men that have lost their way they come from most of the time, especially here in South Africa, dysfunctional families. They do not know what it is to get a hug or be loved. And we bring that passion, that extra passion, and show them change is possible. Change can happen. And they find, uh, to some extent, a mother also in us. And that is how we change things around. Just one specific thing. I came from a meeting and this young man pulls up by my gate. In the meeting, a mediation meeting in the week, I said, guys, if you ever feel like you are out of control and you're not able to control yourself and the urge is there to shoot, please call on me anytime. And I was hoping and praying 
they would remember that if they wanted to go out shooting. And that Saturday, I was so tired coming from a meeting. And this car pulls up and this, uh, this young man says, Ma, the gang leaders have asked you to come now, now. It's very urgent. And when I entered the room, and I entered it without even notifying my other colleagues, the meeting was contentious. They were at each other's throat, screaming at each other. And as I entered, there became silence. And I looked at them and I smiled and I kept myself very calm and I asked, what is the issue? Take out the, the, the board and written down each of and everybody's input that they give. And you know what came out beautifully? They could shake hands and even said then afterwards, Ma, thank you for guiding us. We could have now killed a lot of innocent people again, but because of your guidance now, there's not a gang fight. And that is what women bring to the table. Back to you, Yvette. Yeah, I, I just very quickly to say, you know, great, uh, Rochanda. I also want to add that when we go in for negotiations from the women's situation room and we go into negotiations with the gang, I try not to take men with me. And the reason being this, if we are in some sort of negotiations and we take men with us, immediately it becomes a matter of territorial, you know, integrity to show that they are in charge and that these men you brought are not going to be in charge of them. Because the majority of the people you're dealing with are men. It's a way in which you as a woman is even perceived in dealing with gang violence. The gangs don't see you as threatening to them. They see you as sort of, okay, it's our mother and she's come to talk to us. Okay, we'll listen to you. Whereas if you take men with you, it's a whole different atmosphere. You feel the tension, you, you see all of that happening. Another thing that's important here is the time of the meetings. When we have meetings with gangs, I let them say what time they want to meet. And believe me, 99% of the time it has been at 10, 11 and 12 o'clock at night. Because the first thing is to intimidate, to let you know that you are not that welcome, number one. You better be scared of us. We're meeting you at midnight. And I let them choose their place. I've met with gangs in graveyards, in the worst gang areas where the police wouldn't even go. An example, I'm sitting before a chief of police in one of the Afri West African countries. I get a call saying the gang leader is ready to meet. And I'm forgetting that I'm in front of the inspector general. And I said, what, he's ready to meet when, where? And I said, really, 10 o'clock at night? Okay, and you say where, and I say where? And the chief, the inspector general looks at me and he says, counselor, you're not going there. My officers don't go there at six o'clock at night. So you cannot go there. And I turned back to him, I said, I didn't really know I was here to ask your permission. Not only am I going, but better not send any of your officers behind me because we need to meet with these people. And we go there and have a fantastic meeting at nearly midnight, even though they tell me, tell your driver to stay in the car because should he get up to even go to the bathroom, by the time he comes back, your car will be on blocks. But that is, those are some of the risks you take. I just wanted to say that. Thank you. Thank you to everyone. Those were some wonderful answers. So what steps have been already taken to reduce violence? Generally, in Central America, for example, policymakers have relied on a law enforcement approach to deal with the homicides of violent gang conflict, 
However, this mano dura or iron fist approach, as we have seen it, it's not enough to deal with a problem that is so deeply rooted in communities. And that is when mediation comes into place. We have success stories of mediation processes that have resulted in a truce between rival gangs followed by a reduction of homicides. We have the example of the peace management initiative that resulted in a historical gang truce in 2008 in Jamaica. So there are lessons to learn and alternatives to try when talking about reducing violence. Marcus, the Cure Violence methodology is applicable to different places and regions. What are the similarities in cities so different like Chicago and Tegucigalpa that allow this model to be useful in avoiding gang violence? How can we apply these lessons learned in different regions? Yeah, so you mentioned you mentioned two countries that cure violence. I mean, we trained the PMI violence interrupters there in Jamaica, and we also trained in Honduras and El Salvador. They're using cure violence, the model in, in those places. And we've, we've helped them with those numbers and those stats because we've been working with Honduras and El Salvador for some time, as well as Jamaica. I worked in Trinidad as well, which is very rough area, Laventail. And obviously I mentioned to the sister about when we worked in um, Cape Town, the key that is very similar in any place that you work at, the key to this is really getting what we call credible individuals, credible messengers, people that have credibility and that are relatable to the environment of that particular neighborhood, that city, that country, wherever it may be, then you can see tremendous drops in your violence. So let me give you an example about Honduras and El Salvador. In most of the places that we work at, we usually like to get people that are credible, that maybe in their former life, they were part of a particular thing. Well, in El Salvador and Honduras, it wasn't that easy to find ex-MS-13s or ex-18 streets because those particular groups, it's a different level. I mean, it's not like you have people that change their lives from them groups and just you know, become mediators. And that particular, in that country, and in, in, in that particular um, region, when we were doing the care violence model, you know who the credible messengers were, the ones that took on the onus to be the violence interrupters and the mediators for those particular areas? It was the pastors. It was the religious community. And it's the only country and city, period, bar none, in any place that we've worked at, where all the mediators were from a religious background because they were deemed to be the most respected, the ones that could get in the the closest to the situation and be heard. And so just to wrap it up back to your initial question, I mean, these similarities, there's nothing new underneath the sun. What happens in South Africa, in, in the neighborhoods, it reminded me so much of the organized street gangs here in the States. No difference. I mean, violence begets more violence. And you have to find the right people and train them correctly. I mean, we're very strong on our training. It's just a matter of getting the right people to do the work, be the mediators, because just can know anybody cannot just do this. This isn't something that you go to college and you say you want to be a mediator. This isn't something for every social worker. This isn't something that probation officers or law enforcement can do. The people that do this work have to have a great understanding of the environment, of the community, and they must possess a tremendous amount of empathy. You cannot get in this work and forget the reasons why people do what they do. And that's why we hire people that in the past, they might have been the same way. And they're able to talk people down because they're talking from lived experience 
I was a violence interrupter and I understand what goes on in the neighborhood because I served almost 10 years myself incarceration. I've been involved in gangs in my past. And so when I became, when I got involved in this work, it allowed me the opportunity to use my past to become a blessing to those that I came in contact with. And as we say in this, and here in the States, game recognize game. That's a slang that we say. And so if you real, real gonna recognize real, and we try to get real people to do this work so they can be the ones to be the influencers, be the mediators on the ground. Thanks for that, Marcus. As you all said, the role of the mediator is extremely important to these processes. And sometimes they are even putting a greater risk. Roxanda, due to your vast experience in conducting gang mediation in South Africa, can you tell us about some safety tips you have learned along the way? I really want to let you on to, in my answer to what Marcus has said. If you have a lot of empathy and have understanding of the situation where these individuals are coming from, I think trust is already a safety tool in your hand. Once they trust you and there is a mutual respect, that guarantees your safety. And why I can say that? As much as there's a hit on my life, it was those same gang members, some gang leaders that tipped me off beforehand. Who is the people that wants to kill me and my family? So what I've always done before going in, the only people that I say I'm going there today is my family in my house. I keep everything as low as possible because why this young men, their trust has been violated so many times. It's not easy for them to trust another stranger, especially here in the South African context. There has been a lot of mediators and a lot of them have sold these young men out because of financial, economic value and so forth. And so They are not in space where they immediately trust people. For me to, to have gone in there, I constantly had to prove myself to say, listen, guys, I do not want anything from you. This is me, a girl that grew up here with you. I know you. I know your parents. I know everything. You know me. If I have to run, where to? We are in the same boat. We are hurting ourselves through our actions. And just my words constantly sharing with them that I am no stranger to you. I think that was my safety tip. Honest, transparent, and trust. Thank you, Rokshanda. Yvette, you'd like to come in? Well, I, I think she's really said the crux of it, which first of all, there must be that mutual respect. There must be that trust. You have to, again, like I did with the a situation with my bag, you must also show you trust them for them to trust you. And the, again, that respect. I will tell you what happened also, give you another example. I do an exit interview at the end of uh, my implementation of my major program. And I usually do an exit interview with the gangs because I want a feedback as to what happened, what they think can be done better, what did we miss, etc. And at the end of the one, as a matter of fact, it was the one in Ghana at that. 
And uh, at the end of it, I asked them, I said, why on the day that Charlotte Osei, who was the National Elections Commission uh, chair, announced that she will no longer be counting the votes by computer, but doing it manually. And all the different politicians started calling all the gang leaders. And I had them in a hotel in a room that I call my gang room. I had all the leaders from all over Ghana. I had assembled them. And so they were there and I could hear the phones going off as I was right next door to them in the next room. And I said, why on that day did you all decide to go with us, the women, when the politicians were offering you money to get on the streets and to start confusion because they believed that the chair of neck was actually going ahead and starting to cheat. And they said something to me that was profound. They said, you know, we see a lot of people coming to Ghana and they say they're here to bring peace. They're here to stop gang violence. They're here to do all of these things. And we see them on television and we hear them on the radio and we see them in our stadiums. But it's the first time that people have actually come to us. You came to us in the graveyards. You came to us in different places where the gangs are and you came to us on our terms. And you listened and you involved us in the negotiation. You didn't tell us what to do. You involve us in planning. You involve us in finding the solution. And I think that can be one of the greatest safety tips is if you involve the very people that you are there to try to, to mediate with in finding their own solution. You know, lots of people get there and want to tell them what to do. That's not the point. And that, in that, I think, adds to the trust that the young people have. And it also adds to them having some sort of self-esteem in seeing that they can actually do this. They can take control of their lives. They can change themselves if they wanted to. Bakshanda, you have a response? I want to agree with Yvette. It's so important. It's so important because these young men, we must remember, they were violated just now recently. One of our board members of the Men and Milk Safety Forum came to me. There was a robbery the morning. And he begs, he says, this lady, a permit to move around, that is gone and all, everything is gone. And, and he's afraid to go and speak to the gang leader. But this woman needs this papers, an ID document and so forth. I said, okay, come and pick me up. And we went. So as you come to the space of this headquarters of the gang, you always find the guards roaming around the house and so on. And, and But they know me. I greeted them. And they, the first thing they said, Ma, you are right. We're so worried. Oh, it's great to see you were still alive. And they took me in. The leader came out. You know, he stepped forward. And because of the COVID-19, he's like, I don't have my mask on, Ma. But how can I help, Ma? How can I accommodate, Ma? And I said to him, listen, this is the issue. And I don't see it as a good thing that gangs are going to fight each other now because of this robbery that took place. This is the perpetrator, but we need the back of the woman. She needs it for a work. While I stood there, the bag came out and the lady got everything that was in a bag. And that is the form of respect, you know. That for me is payment beyond everything. But it also proves to me and the many that does not believe that change is possible. That change is possible. That good is sitting in this children. 
but they need the opportunity to turn the tables around for them. And that is what we should do as mediators. Thank you, Rokshanda. So what needs to be done to reduce violence in communities? From the Global Initiative's research into communities affected by urban violence, we have found out that to build community resilience, you need to evolve at risk youth. Through the Resilience Fund, we have supported this kind of work in Cali, Colombia, in Culiacán, Mexico, and now it's starting in, in Salvador, Brazil, where we involve youngsters and kids in creating safe spaces in their neighborhoods through art and community-based learning activities. As a cure violence approach suggests, violence can be preventable and it's attached to some cultural conditions. Marcus, what does the experience of cure violence around the world has taught us about the prevention of violence? It's taught us that that you can bring the violence down. I mean, we've seen it and we've seen it over and over again with various evaluation that it's not just a matter of a heavy um, criminal justice law enforcement approach. You have to have a, a humanity approach to be able to deal with this level of violence that's going on everywhere. And if you just, I mean, if you just talk to people, you'd be surprised how you can level the playing field and bring violence down. I mean, when you have an outlet like a cure violence model and a team put together, and like the, the two ladies are speaking about with the work that they do, when you have individuals like them that gives the opportunity for the individuals to have somebody to lean on and say that they're given the situation to pass because of the work of Yvette or uh, Miss Pascal. Those situations are what we've seen to be very helpful. And it's just, you have to invest in people. You, you have to invest in the neighborhood. You have to invest in the community. For many, many years, we've invested in all the other ways and looking where it has gotten us at this point. It's time to invest money in people, in community, start from the grassroots level and let them take a shot at making their neighborhoods safer. And lastly, let me just say this last part right here. I think this is important. And I always say this, no matter where I'm speaking, I think this is critical. The people that we hire, this work is changing their life just as much as they are changing the lives of the people. So you have to realize that the mediators, by doing this work, they are transforming their community because people remember the mediator when they were the person that was doing something. And now they're doing this work and it's given them so much, so much pride in the fact that now they can help out their community. So I love the fact that we are transforming the workforce. And these are people that people might have given up on. Oh, they've been to jail. There's nothing they can do for society. They're, they were once this person. But we're showing that if you invest and these same people that people have written off, then they can deal with the people on the streets that people have written off. And it becomes a chain reaction of great things happening. These gentlemen and women can show that they can play a major role in a society of bringing peace in that community. Thank you, Marcus. And Yvette, if I can turn back to you, from your experience, how can the lessons learned be applied in very different regions? Definitely, I feel that it is applicable that when you look at the lessons learned, just, just like Marcus said, just as Chandra said, it's applicable to gangs all over the world, you know, and these same things are reoccurring because the situation is the same. You know, poverty, lack of access to opportunities, feeling completely disjointed from society for whatever reasons, 
all of these go towards young people joining gangs to get respect, to have a feeling of family, to being noticed, to, to having some cohesiveness. All of these are reasons young people join gangs. So it's applicable universally to it, even though things may differ from one place to another as to what you can and cannot do, an example of which is with us with the Women's Situation Room, we implement according to each country. Each country is different. We've never implemented it the same in every country. But what we have found the same is the same thing runs through the gangs. But because of political sensitivity on the ground that you must also be aware of, if you want to actually be successful, we've had to implement differently in some countries. Some countries will not allow you, like we had the first gang march in Ghana. We had the first mediation process of conference of the gangs also in Ghana, but we couldn't, we can't do it in Uganda because it simply isn't allowed. So it, it's a different as to what you can do where, and therefore you, you yourself have to be adaptable and flexible and understand the sensitivity on the ground both to the young people and to those who are in the outside circle that can bring their politics or their power to bear. So I think one has to be sensitive for your complete surroundings, both politically and physically. And I think I'm very interested in Marcus' training. I would really like to see it, Marcus. We can exchange emails so I can see what your training is about. And maybe we can do some collaboration here. Thank you very much. Roxanne, that you'd like to come in? I want to agree with Marcus and Yvette first. There's a lot of things that I that I've been saying a long time and I was laughing here with excitement to hear it coming from their mouths. It means that I'm not alone in this. <laughs> but um as the Menemuk Safety Forum or Western Cape United Safety Front, we have embarked on a new project because we have done a lot of things already. What we have already um, assessed now is a more and more young boys of 10 and 11 are roped into gangs. The, the setup of the community is a violent setup. So it's so overwhelming and, and so much to bear what our young children do not see any future. There's no hope. They, they have no dreams, vision, nothing. So we have embarked on a project which we are calling now House of Hope and Marcus, maybe we can collaborate in that because what we want to do, buy a piece of land 90 kilometers out of Cape Town and the boys will build itself. They will own the space. And we said the first intakes, they will become the first ambassadors to go and help the other young ones that also wants to exit this life. And so... Yvette, Marcus, I need you guys to assist us in really setting this up and so that it can be something for our youth that wants something different. We have promised them five years back, we will not leave your hand. We will walk this journey with you until you are safe. No matter if government gives up on you, we will not give up on you. And now we have embarked, we have contextualized the project we know what we want, how it should be envisioned. We just need the support and financial support towards it. Thank you, Rapshanda. And Marcus, I just wanted to come back to you there because you have had two offers of collaboration. Yes, no, most definitely. This has been a pleasure for me 
to meet both of you and just be a part of this. I'm so glad that I was able to partake in this this situation. And so I would, um, um, if you could, um, I don't know how we want to do it. I could say it now, or you can just give them my email. I surely can pass that across. No problem. Yes, please just pass that across. Yeah, it would be my pleasure to build and network with both of you and any way I can help and do anything. It would be my pleasure. So definitely let's, let's make it happen. I'm all for it. It was a fascinating discussion and it is always great to hear people coming together to help each other and work for a better outcome for overcoming community violence. So thank you again. Thank you all. Thank you. Thank you ever so much for having us. Thank you for not only coming on the podcast, but for all the work that you do. Marcus McAllister from Cure Violence Global, Roxanda Pasco, the chairperson of MSF in South Africa, and Yvette cheson Bure from the Liberian-based Angie Brooks International Center. That's it for today's episode of the Faces of Assassination podcast from the Global Initiative Against Transnational Organized Crime. Please go to our website, assassination.globalinitiative.net, subscribe to our newsletter and this podcast series, help us remember the death anniversaries using our hashtag, assassinationwitness. You can also download a free ebook which profiles 50 victims of assassination who have yet to receive justice. These journalists, environmental campaigners, politicians, activists were more than just that. They were husbands, wives, mothers and fathers with children, families that often still live in fear, communities that live in fear of reprisals for speaking out against organized crime and corruption. The best tribute you can pay to the courageous people who stood up to crime is to keep their memories alive. And with our collective memory, shine a light into this darkness. And please remember to rate, review, and subscribe to this podcast. It helps us get noticed and get these important messages out there. This was the Faces of Assassination podcast. I am Siria Gastelum-Felix. Thank you for listening. <laughs>